Good morning, everybody. Welcome or welcome back. Whatever be the case, if this is your first time this morning, I want to greet you too. I'm Kenny, one of our elders. I'm going to get out a little closer here. Mark, that's where we are, the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, uh, some, some weeks we forget to say this, but if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one. Uh, you can borrow one during the service if you just forgot one at home. Or if you don't have one, we have ones that you can take and keep with you. So just want to check. Anyone in here would like a Bible? No shame in that. We could have an usher and pull one right in. We got them right in the hallway. Anybody? All right. Then turn in that Bible to Mark 3, please. And... Uh, I wanted us to stop and connect something here, uh, dots between last week where Scott uh, took everybody in, in our last text in Mark, and this hymn that we just sang with some very old vocabulary. I don't think I've sung a twill or, to tw- uh, or a twir uh, in a hymn before. Twill, for sure, for sure I've never sung before. Um, but uh, it's connected to what was really the central point of Scott's message last week, is that Jesus uh, in the Gospels brings disruption incredible disruption to agendas and expectations that there were for God's Messiah and how God was going to work and who was inside and who was outside. Um, And uh, who Jesus was disrupted expectation and what he did and what he said and who he talked to and who he rebuked and who he welcomed and who he touched and who he healed was turning a lot of things upside down for many of the Jews as he's here. And, and some are wondering but still drawing near. Others are, are one, not wanting any part of it. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 3, we know that Pharisees are already plotting to kill Jesus. Um, but he is a disruption. And this hymn that we just sang follows from this, that Jesus actually invites people to follow him, and that means the disruption Jesus brings. Part of the deal is that disruption is shared by those who follow him, right? So some of these lines we just sang, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Modern words, from this point on, Jesus, you are my all. I want you to be my all. And so then this hymn has us singing some of the things that might involve. It might involve man, trouble, and distressing you. It can involve foes. Jesus can make enemies for you. And friends might disown you following Jesus. And life with trials may press hard on you. None of those are going to be chapters in a Joel Osteen book. Anytime soon, I can guarantee, unless something radical happens, right? Uh, This is not your best life now. Unless, this is true, unless you let Jesus define for you what does he mean by best and what does he mean by life, right? If, If we let Jesus define for us what is best for us and what is real life and what is death, then actually Jesus does come offering your best life now and forever, But a lot of what Jesus is saying doesn't sound like that to many. So Jesus is revealing uh, little by little what is God's plan for best life. And the way that the Gospels unfold, the way that the life of Jesus unfolds for us in the Gospel of Mark or in the Gospel of Matthew, we get it little by little. I, I was thinking of the analogy of unwrapping a present slowly, right? Not like a barbarian that you just... Tear it, but if you have, you know, if you're civilized, you know, and your grandmother's taught you well to save the paper, right? And so you start, my grandma did, we had to start, fold it and use it next time, right? But you op- have you ever opened a present slowly, you want to make it last, you open the end, and you look in, you try to get a hint of what's on, what is on the box on the outside, does that tell you what's inside? And you start to peel it back slowly, and if it's a white box with a silver apple, you're like, oh, yeah, right? <laughs> or if it has the Lego logo, you're like, oh, yeah, right? What's inside? And little by little, more of the, the gift is revealed. And that's what's happening in the gospel. Now, if you've read these before and we're coming back to it again, and we sort of know all the surprises again. We've unwrapped the gift before. But if you imagine in these scenes, Jesus for the, these crowds and these people is unwrapping a little by little the mystery of the gospel. That's what Paul said the gospel was for a long time. He says it in Colossians. He says it in Romans. Um, 
He says it in other letters. He says the gospel was a mystery for a long time that God didn't put all the cards on the table until Jesus came. And now in Jesus, we are finally learning what is God's plan to make sinners right with him? How's that gonna happen? And so in this scene, something surprising gets revealed. A little bit more of the wrapping gets pulled back. We've already seen revealed that Jesus talks like nobody else. He speaks as if he has authority. He speaks as if uh, he is God himself, as if he can just say, truly, truly, I say to you, and, and that's all the authority he needs. And he has the audacity to say, not only can I offer forgiveness of sins, but that's my right to even do so, as if sin is foundationally against him. He can say, well, actually, I can forgive sins because sin is against me. And, and it leaves people saying, who is he to say you can forgive sin? And the wrapping papers come back to see unclean spirits recognize him and call him the son of the most high and they tremble and they even seem to think that him showing up means they're done, right? Have you come to destroy me? We know who you are, they say. And with a word, he casts them out and they obey. And sickness, this is why the crowds are, are flocking to him, is Jesus, with a word or a touch, has the ability to... Um, uh, Turn back everything that makes us fear death, sickness and disease and disability and everything that makes our bodies wear out and eventually die, which brings fear of death. Jesus has the power over the things that make us afraid of death. And here we get to Mark 3, 31. And in this little scene where he's teaching and his family show up outside, as we're going to see, he takes a, a teaching opportunity to, to reveal something else that was, I think, a shock to them about God's plan and about God's kingdom. So my outline is this, three actually surprising points that Jesus makes with this one teaching moment. So three surprising things. And then two implications. There's a lot of imp implications of these truths that Jesus reveals, but two that I want to touch on. So three surprises, two implications. Let's read. Let's read 20 and 21 first because that's the context here. That's why his family is standing outside. So verse 20, Jesus has just come down from a retreat up to a mountain. He's, he's decided these 12 men are going to have a unique role and they're going to be disciples and follow him closely. And they will actually end up being the first, the apostles who are going to, he's going to build his church on. And he comes down, verse 20, from the mountain and he went home and the crowds gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. He doesn't even have a moment to stop and, and refuel. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Okay, verse 31. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So Jesus is teaching again. He's teaching in a house, probably the house that he's gathered in in verse 20. And it's so packed that they can't even get in. So they've shown up and they're way outside. And word filters in to Jesus, verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about, I like that, and looking about at those sitting around and making eye contact with these people who are sitting right at his feet, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. This would have been shocking to everyone sitting around, probably offensive and hurtful to his mom and brothers, especially his mom outside when Jesus doesn't come outside and go along with them. This is surprising what Jesus does here. He's making a point. And the first surprise I think here is uh, new information that he's revealing is that this kingdom of God that he has come proclaiming and inviting people into and saying, repent and believe in me who brings it. God's kingdom is actually going to be a family. So Jesus is saying, when, when you think of God's kingdom, he actually begins talking about it now in familial terms, in relation, in the most intimate relationship terms. Jesus actually says, you can actually be, I can, I can call you brother or sister. 
You can be truly to me family, even though these people around his feet, they're going, we're not your family. You can actually be part of God's family. To be part of his kingdom is to be part of a family. So he's not just calling subjects to, to follow him and fill up his kingdom or citizens, but it's about sons, right? Not becoming citizens, but sons and heirs, sons and daughters, children of God, and have fellowship in a brotherly way with Jesus, the one who no one has ever talked like this. Jesus invitation to, to be part of God's kingdom is, is, is an adoption. He's inviting people to be adopted into the family of God, to be his brother. And this couldn't fit more perfectly with our new city catechism question this last week. Can you put it up again, Chris? So this is not just some of the heady theological categories, we just have to get straight to be good Christians and it doesn't really intersect with anything meaningful. This is at the very heart of God's kingdom is this, that how many persons are there in God? Well, there are three and it's mind-blowing and we can't fully understand, but there is one true and living God and yet he exists in three persons, father, son, those are family relationship titles, that the Bible gives and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons in one true living God, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So they're all, if we went back to last week's question, which we don't have a slide for, but again, this God who has eternally and infinitely existed unchangeably, perfect in power uh, and in glory and goodness and wisdom, justice and truth, that's true of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have always been, and yet... There's uniqueness in person, and my brain hurts. I've tried to explain that to my seven-year-old and nine-year-old this week and doing my best. To, and I read a great little blog by Russell Moore this last week that was encouraging to me. He was saying, you know, parents, as you're trying to teach the Trinity to some of your uh, younger kids, you know, one thing to remember, teaching them that you can't explain it is a good point. Thank you, you know, because it does teach that God blows our categories, right? If God didn't blow our categories, we pro it's, we're probably not dealing with God. So here's this God, this triune God, and it has everything to do with his purposes for all of history, for people. One of the implications of the fact that God has always been in relationship in himself is that family and love is not something he created, but something that's always existed. So it's not like for eternity past, there was no such thing as love or family, but then God created us and now there can be that. No, for eternity past, God has always known and experienced this thing called love and familial love. He uses the terms that God, the first person of the Trinity, God, the second person of the Trinity have had a relationship with one another that is like father and son, right? And so Jesus now comes and invites us and says, you want to be part of God's kingdom? You can actually share in this love that we have always known. You can have a taste and a participation in something that Fred Sanders, who is a member at Grace La Mirada and teaches at Biola and one of the smartest dudes I know, has thought a lot about the Trinity. He calls it the happy land of the Trinity. Trying to describe this eternal existence that God has known of being happy. Have you ever noticed in uh, Holy, 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 we sing uh, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's, that's an important word there, blessed Trinity. The triune God is blessed, he's happy. There's a joy he experiences because of this love that he's known and Jesus is inviting us into it. And so the Trinity has everything to do with being adopted, Right? Um, let me commend this book to you before I forget. Fred wrote this wonderful little book called, it's not so little, but The Deep Things of God about um, how the Trinity changes everything is the subtitle. This week, if you have Kindle or iPad, $2.99 this week on Amazon. Anyway, there's a plug. It's a great book. But let me just read you a couple of lines that I went back to this week and pulled from it as he connects the dots with God is triune and here's Jesus inviting us into his family and what that means he says it like this. When the Father sends the Son into salvation history, that's right here, Gospel Mark, incarnation, taking on flesh, he's doing something astonishing. He is extending the relationship of divine sonship from its home in the life of God down in human history. 
this relationship of divine sonship that's always existed as part of the very definition of God, but it's existed only within the being of the Trinity so far. But now in adoption, he writes this, adoption becomes the central biblical description of how God saves. What does it mean that God saves? He adopts. And it emphasizes the quality of this new relationship God brings us into, a relationship of having been made into his children. Stop right there for a minute. You can leave the slide up. So think, in adoption, you don't create a family. Adoption assumes a family and then brings an outsider, an orphan, into and makes part of the family. That's what adoption is. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this. There has been an eternal family, the perfect loving family, God himself. And now he is inviting orphans to be made part of this family. So Fred goes on, he says, in explicitly Trinitarian terms, this means God brings us into the relationship of sonship that has always been a part of his divine life. I love this. He says, sonship was always with God and it came to be on earth as it is in heaven. So much so that he says every time we hear the biblical proclamation that we've been made God's children, we should hear deep incarnational and Trinitarian echoes of this good news. See what kind of love the Father's given us? That we should be called children of God? Not just called, and so we are. So this is wonderful news. Jesus is unveiling here about the mystery of the gospel is that God's intent all along has been to include us in this perfect love he's always known. And not just us with him. So Jesus says, who, who is my brother and my sister, but also then by extension, this family that's made this unusual, blended, weird-looking family called the church that's all those whom God has made children we can begin to ex experience this kind of love with each other, imperfectly, all while sinning against each other and having to forgive one another and bear with one another. But by degrees, John in 1 John says that it's one of the defining marks of a child of God is that he loves the other children of God, right? He experiences a, a bond, a family bond with people who in all sorts of ways are very unlike one another and yet share something really deep deeper than DNA, a bond that Jesus is brother, right? And God's, the spirit of God's son now dwells in, in us. So that's surprise number one, is that God's kingdom is a family. That entering into it uh, is not just being naturalized as a citizen, it's being adopted as a child. That's awesome. So then the point he makes here, the real key, is he then, like you were saying last week, he's, he's drawing lines in the gospel, right? And, he, and we're going to keep seeing this. Jesus is going to keep talking in inside and outside language and highlighting who is inside this family and who is not inside this family. And the crazy thing in this scene is Jesus makes a point, at least now, of pointing out who is not necessarily in his true family, and that is his biological family. And at the same time, this, this group of people sitting at his feet, he, he says, that's my true family. Okay, so there are two more surprises here. One is answering the question, what doesn't make you part of this family? On what, what is not the basis of God calling you son and heir and Jesus calling you brother? The answer to that that Jesus gives is a caution. It's a caution to any of us who would assume that we are obviously God's children based on the same things that Jesus here is saying, no, 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 that doesn't make you my, my brother. It's a caution. And then the other question is, what does? And that's a word of assurance. He actually encourages and gives assurance to these, these people, dear people sitting at his feet. What you're doing right now is a demonstration. You, you are, this is what makes you my family. And this is what shows you really are my family. So let's take those two things. Number two, what doesn't make someone a member of Jesus' true family? And what he says is um, familiarity doesn't make you family. A uh, acquaintance, 
uh, or close association with Jesus, just proximity to Jesus, even biological relationship to Jesus, he says, does not necessarily make you part of this kingdom, part of this family. He makes a point, a shocking point to this crowd to insinuate that at this point, his own mom even is not necessarily demonstrating that she's part of his, his family, this eternal family. So look, verse 31, where are Jesus' family in this scene? Well, they're standing outside and it's not incidental. It's not just, well, they showed up late. They wanted a seat, but they got there late and now they can't get in there. But they've come for, Scott's pointed out, miles, right? This isn't their hometown probably. So they've traveled for an intervention. They are there not to participate in what's going on, but to try to stop it. They're trying to talk Jesus down, right? We get glimpses uh, later on in John 6 that at least for the brothers, it's because they just flat out don't believe in Jesus. There's a scene in John 6, no, John 7, and they're actually mocking Jesus. They're actually insinuating that Jesus is kind of full of himself. And they say, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Insinuation is, Jesus, aren't you mainly about at this point you're, seeking to be known, trying to establish a reputation for yourself. And in one way he is, but not in the way they imply. So they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Go up to Judea. There's a bigger crowd. Take your show up somewhere bigger, more people to see it. And then John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And believe in him at this point. We don't know I mean, if Mary shared their, un, their level of unbelief, but regardless, they're, they're all there here on the outside and they're trying to get Jesus to stop. They think he's lost it. They think he's crazy. You know, they're probably worried for his safety. Just, you know, Scott pointed out the hostility is mounting toward Jesus, right? Maybe rumors are beginning to spread that Pharisees don't like this and scribes don't like this. And you can tell in these scenes where he's calling them out and his family is going, he's going to get himself killed. And they're obviously concerned for his health, right? The crowds and the crowds and he just can't stop and he's teaching and he's healing and he's not eating. And, you know, like a good Jewish mother, he's got to eat, right? He's not taking care of himself, that was a terrible impersonation, right? But, so what I'm, but the point is, though, they think that they're acting in Jesus' best interest even. But the way Jesus draws the lines here in this teaching moment is they are opposing God's will. And that sounds really harsh, right? Come on, they love you. They just don't want you to, you know, get worn out and get sick or get killed, Right? I mean, opposition, that's the Pharisees. They're, they're plotting with Herod's people to destroy you, Jesus. That's opposing you. That's satanic, right? Calling what you do the works of the devil. But Jesus is saying, actually, no, my mother and my brothers right now are, are, are not for me. They are not for God's will. I want us to see this, that opposing Jesus doesn't only look like antagonism toward Jesus, but opposing Jesus can actually look like avoiding the cross. So Peter in Mark 8, he finally gets it and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in the very next moment, Jesus is teaching and it's a public scene. And Jesus says, well, you're right. And you know what the son of, man, the son of the living God needs to go through? He's going to be rejected by his people and he's going to be delivered over by the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, and he's going to be put to death. He's going to suffer and be rejected. And do you remember what Peter does? It's crazy that you think he does this. He, it says he takes Jesus aside physically and rebukes him. Top of the list of things don't do to Jesus, right? <laughs> Public, right? And he, he physically he, he inter interrupts and says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And what he says has a, a finger-shaking element to it. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> now, does Peter love Jesus? Absolutely. Why is he saying this? There's no way. Not even just love, but is revering. He's calling him, he's, he's the Christ. No way, Jesus. I'll take this before. I mean, he's, right? Protection, protectiveness. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He calls him Satan. <laughs> Buddy, get behind me, Satan, he says <laughs> to Peter. If anyone is op opposed to God, it's Satan. And Jesus calls his friend and his disciple Satan. 
Why? Because he's being antagonistic and, and denying that he's the Christ, like the scribes and Pharisees, and, and, and bla- saying he's a blasphemer? No. It's because he's actually trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross. And the same way, to a lesser extent, but his family right now is, is, is trying to steer Jesus away from the very reason that Jesus has come. And he says, that's not the will of God. That doesn't look like family. We need to realize, we'll just go back to that point, that um, we can oppose God by being antagonistic toward his will. We can deny him and reject him and reject Jesus and deny who he says he is, like the Pharisees and scribes. But there is also a category of opposing God by avoiding parts of God's will and aspects of Jesus' character and aspects of Jesus' commands and truths that Jesus teaches and just avoiding them. Do you know anyone or, 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 or is this you that is selectively loves Jesus? Not all that extreme stuff, right? Not all that take up your cross and, and, and follow me, deny yourself stuff. But I like that stuff about love your neighbor, Right? And the way Jesus talks, he says that whoever's not for me is against me, right? You don't have to be antagonistic to oppose God. You just have to not, you want to avoid what God's will is, right? And that's what's going on in this scene with his mother and his brothers. And so as the word filters in and, he's, and, and the crowd says, your mother and brothers are outside, he says, who are my mother and brothers? I think it's like saying, him saying, are you sure about that? The caution for us, I think, in this is that if being related to Jesus did not automatically make Mary part of Jesus' family, true family, then any other measure of acquaintance with Jesus, association with Jesus, familiarity with him or familiarity with his word or association with his people, right, his church, that doesn't make us part of his family, So, I mean, kids, uh, Jesus doesn't call you brother or sister simply because you're in a really good Christian family and have godly parents who say Jesus is Lord or that your grandparents do, which I know, right? Or that you've always known about Jesus. You've just been raised in the church or maybe you're third and fourth generation. That doesn't make you automatically part of Jesus' family. Or if your husband or wife is really a devout Christian, and so they're sort of my, our family representative, you know, they're into God and church, and they go, and, and I, you know, I might be hit or miss, but I try, I try my best, right? It's not sort of I'm in by association. Jesus doesn't have in-laws, right? Well, I'm with her, and she's in, so Jesus is saying, no, 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 there is a point at which every person individually will give account to me. One day, everyone will stand individually before Jesus as judge. And Jesus says in that day, there are many, many who will say, Lord. And his response is going to be, I've never known you. Another way of saying that is, you're not my family. You call me Lord, but you're not my family. And I think many people who say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I don't know you, will be basing that Lord on some measure of acquaintance with Jesus, right? Jesus, I know your word. I taught Sunday school. I was, I was a deacon. I was part of a church. I served faithfully. My family were, were always Christians, right? Of course I'm in your family. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what makes you part of my family. I never knew you. I know people at Grace La Mirada, um, the Vice family, dear family, but when they first came to Grace La Mirada years ago, um, where they had been before was another church in La Mirada as volunteers being youth leaders, And they were given a curriculum and they were teaching Sunday school with junior high and high school kids. And as they're studying the Bible and trying to understand this curriculum and then teach it themselves as the youth leaders, they're beginning to, they're they're getting disrupted, right? Their their categories and understanding of what makes you right with God was getting challenged to the point where they went to winter camp that they took their youth group to and they responded in faith to the altar call, I mean, to the, to the invitation to Jesus. They got saved taking their youth group to, so being a youth pastor, youth leader doesn't make you in, right? 
There's family, the, the horns, dear uh, family, they're, uh, Orton and Ruth, they're both with the Lord now, but when I came to Grace, they'd been there for decades. And Ruth was this wonderful little short uh, German woman. She'd been born in Germany, met uh, Orton when he was over there in the war, and she still had this thick German accent. But I remember as I got to know Ruth, asking her testimony, and she and Orton were, were serving. He was a deacon in, in their former church, and they were leaders, and they were sort of the pillars of the, uh, in, in the church, and they suddenly realized, no, 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 the basis by which I call God Father and he calls us children is not what we thought. I'm not in by association. It's not that. So that's a word of warning and caution for, you, for us to ask and say, is that the basis by which I think Jesus will say, family? Of course I know you. If it's not good enough for Mary, Mary carried Jesus for nine months in her womb, right? I mean, Laura, recent mom, right? I mean, crazy. Think that Savannah was in there for nine months. Mary carried nine months. Jesus was connected to her by an umbilical cord, right? That had to be cut. And that's not enough. She, she nursed the baby and, and, and changed his diapers and, and raised him. You can feel the offense that, the hurt she might have even felt in the seat. Wait, What? But Jesus is saying a hard saying here. That is not what makes you, um, doesn't, that's not what brings you into this Trinitarian family love um, of, of union and fellowship with God. It's not enough. So then how does he answer? Third point, here's a surprise. Who are then? Who are members of, of Jesus' true family? What makes you part of Jesus' true family? And what are the identifying marks of those who have become his family? And Jesus does this often. He just sums it, he boils it in, down into six words. Now, we need to make sure we understand these six words and don't misunderstand them. But he says it so simply. He says, at the end of the day, you know what makes someone, brings some, someone into this family? You know who I welcome into this family? You know who God welcomes into this family? Whoever does the will of God. That's my family. Now, we need to understand what that means because so far in the gospel, and we'll keep seeing, some of those who are... So, uh, so carefully and publicly doing the will of God best want to kill him, right? So the Pharisees, I mean, Jesus makes jokes about how carefully they try to uh, carry out the law and don't step out of the bounds. And so God says, tithe, give a tenth. And they're measuring out their spices from their spice cabinet just to make sure that they've literally given 10% of everything. And at the same time, they're conspiring to kill Jesus, right? Right? They're going so far to keep and not break Sabbath that they'll leave someone disabled in their injury rather than allow Jesus to heal them, right? So that's not doing the will of God, apparently. And at the same time, whatever this means, whatever he means by saying whoever does the will of God is something that these people are doing right now, right? Because he says, verse 34, looking about at those who sat around him, he said... Here are my mother and my brothers, my or brothers and sisters. You're there right now. You are my family right now, right? And the, so these aren't perfect people. They are not exceeding the Pharisees in, in, in their outward righteousness, right? That's the whole point. They look up to the Pharisees as I could never keep God's law like that. And here's these people sitting at his feet. And Jesus is able to say of them right now in this moment, you're my family. So think, what is it that they're doing right now in this scene that Jesus can point to and say, that's my family. What are they doing? They're not doing much, actually. They're sitting and they're listening to Jesus, right? They're, they're, they're receiving him. They're sitting in a posture of welcoming and receiving. We know what he's doing in these scenes. Mark told us at the beginning. He's saying, repent and believe in the good news because the kingdom of God is here and what are they doing? They're sitting and they're receiving it. They're listening. They're hanging on their words. They're packed in so tight to hear it that his mom can't get in, right? I think another way of putting what Jesus is getting after he's saying, whoever yields themselves entirely to God and the one whom God has sent, that is Jesus. It's yielding. 
You know, last week, uh, I, I didn't hear Scott here, but I listened to the podcast, which, by the way, if you ever miss a sermon, we have a podcast. You can listen uh, to sermons you missed, and I did, and it was great. And one point he made is Jesus is drawing lines and saying, you know what makes you in and out? It's not, it's not an unrighteousness-righteousness distinction. It's a humble and proud distinction, right? So Jesus says, you know who's in? Those who know they're sick and they need a doctor. You know who's out? Those who are proud and don't think they do. And the ironic thing is, joke's on you, you actually are more sick than these people right here right? Well, in this passage, the way he puts it, instead of humble and proud, he's saying, you know who's in it? In the one who yields to me. That's what humility before God is, right? It's a yielding, saying, not my will, but your will. It's a posture of the heart turning from saying my will to saying your will. And at this point, what are they hearing from Jesus is the will of God? You yield to me, the one I've sent. In fact, um, in John 6, crowds ask Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God. You believe in him whom he sent. You believe him entirely, completely. Which includes you obey my commands, right? He says, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. I don't understand what Lord means. So it involves yielding yourself completely to Jesus, the one God has sent. Now here, we're not to the end of the gospel yet. All of the wrapping paper hasn't been pulled off yet, so to speak. And so Jesus is not making a point right now about, at the end of the day, how are sinners really going to get forgiven and the atonement? And what is Jesus going to have to endure so that God can say, it is finished, sin paid? He's not dealing with um, that aspect of how we get saved here, but I think he is dealing with, he's answering the question, what is the response to me, Jesus? that in return will receive forgiveness and adoption. What is the response to Jesus that in turn then Jesus says, family? And the response is a yielding to him whom God has sent. That involves repentance and turning from sin and an acknowledging from the, the, the heart, my way leads to death. Your way leads to life, right? And then it's yielding to everything he says. And what he says is the way and the truth and the life. And that's what they're doing. Just two, two quick points about that I, I think is important because I think that this whoever does the will of God is both how you become part of God's family in the first place, but it then is also the ongoing characteristic family resemblance of God's people, right? His family resemble him, not perfectly, but it is the identifying mark. Jesus says, you know who looks like my brothers? It's the one who does the will of God. First of all, it's how we become united with God's family in the first place. It doesn't mean we pay our adoption fees with obedience, right? It doesn't, whoever does the will of God, then you can be adopted, right? That's, that's not what Jesus means by that. But he is able to look at them and say, whoever does the will of God, that's my family, But it's this, this response uh, of yielding, I think, that actually is what conversion is. When someone goes from death to life, or Ephesians 2 says, dead in sin, made alive together with Christ. What happens fu fundamentally is the heart turns from sin and yields to God. But then it becomes the mark of family resemblance. If you think in the Gospels, what is the, the, the overarching si singular characteristic of Jesus, um, uh, his character, and that is, he does the will of God. He doesn't just do the will of God. He loves the will of God, right? So John 4, he's skipping another meal. He's talking to this Samaritan woman, and his disciples come back, and, and they say, you haven't eaten lunch yet? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, my food, I, just don't, I don't just do it. I want to do God's will. There's a desire to do God's will. He says, I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. He doesn't just do God's will. He seeks it. There's a desire, right? John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's an inclination of the heart toward God's will. And that becomes the, the, a mark of family resemblance. We look like Jesus most when we want to do God's will. And I want to say one little side note about that is um, you can look like Jesus' brother even when you're failing to do his will or keep his commands. Can you relate? There are times where I have more, you know, blatantly disregarded what I know is God's will. 
It wasn't unknowingly, oops, boy, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. I mean, it's like willfully doing what God says no. And there is an inclination in my heart toward something else, that even immediately there's conviction of sin that's a, a hint of it that says, no, that is not my will. My food is to do the will of him who made me, who saved me. And even that is a mark of family resemblance that we should be encouraged by. But that inclination, if it never works itself out outwardly, I think Jesus also says um, there's good reason to say, um, you call me Lord. <laughs> Keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? <laughs> it means you do what I say, right? Okay. One last thing about whoever does the will of God is the word whoever is awesome, right? Who can be in my family? Whoever yields to me. So your family can't get you into God's family, but your family of origin also can't keep you out of God's family. It doesn't matter if none of your family has ever believed in Jesus for generations back. It doesn't matter if your family religion is not Christian. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or your personal history or your track record of sin. Last week's passage, Scott preached on, even says it doesn't matter how long you have blasphemed God with your life. What did he say? I got to look back. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter can be forgiven. It's whoever yields. It says, I give. I was wrong to blaspheme and turns to God. Jesus says, family. Whoever does the will of God. And that could be you. And I want to ask you this morning to consider before the morning is done, say, does this describe me? My inclination is to do the will of God who made me and who saved me. And if not, to do that, to yield to him. All right. Rest of my time, I'm going to quickly hit two implications that I want us to, to connect dots to. Number one is this. In light of what Jesus says here, uh, family doesn't come first. Talk about disruptive message, especially to nice, conservative, Christian, fam focus on the family value, Christians, right? Fa of course family's supposed to come first, but what Jesus is saying here is as wonderful as family is, as God-ordained as it is, and as good as it is, and as much as we ought to love one another and, and be families that love one another better than anyone, it's not first. So what does Jesus do in this scene when the wishes of his family don't align with the will of God, where does he yield? With God. His mother and brothers are outside and he doesn't go with them. I heard one pastor a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to who preached on this, say, so we're called to honor uh, our families, but worship God. Worship God. I want us to keep this in, in, in healthy tension with this. Um, Jesus says and models a lot about um, how important he views family and family relationships. When Jesus makes a point, family doesn't come first, he doesn't mean family is insignificant. Forget family. Don't worry about family. Jesus said one time, these Pharisees were actually justifying neglect of their uh, elderly parents, saying, sorry, my money's dedicated to God. And he gets ticked, right? He says, you hide behind your traditions and you fail to love your parents the way God calls you to, honoring them. And he calls it out. So family might not come first, but family is important. Jesus is dying on the cross. And one of the last things he says is, John, take care of my mother. Even as he's finishing the will of God for his earthly life here before he expires, he's still caring, caring for his elderly mother. And he would have high-fived Paul who wrote, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, right? If anyone values family most, it's Jesus. And yet that can't shave the sharp edges off Jesus also saying, whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy. It seems crazy when you love your parents and you love your kids and you think, I can't imagine loving anyone more than that. And Jesus is saying, uh, do you love me more than even these? 
If you don't, that's the definition of idol, right? Something else that's really good becomes ultimate. And so there's a warning in this for us, right? So to realize even family can become an idol. If your self-worth and your joy um, and identity rises and falls with feeling the approval or not feeling the approval of your mom or your dad, or feeling the approval and affection returned to you of your kids, or feeling the approval of your community about what a good husband or dad or wife or mom or brother or sister you are or not. And that either wrecks you or makes you feel really good about yourself. That's an indication that family, something really good, can even be uh, on the throne of your heart. That's really where my joy is. And what Jesus is saying here undermines that and says, no, family does not come first. And second implication, it's related, but it goes even a step further. Uh, Being part of Jesus' true family might cost you your earthly family. Jesus might mess up your family, your nuclear family. He might make family gatherings awkward or worse, dangerous. There's a young man I've been getting to know this year who's been coming to Grace Fullerton. He was here in our 9 a.m. service. His name's Mohammed, and he was born in Iran. And he's been here for less than a year living with a family, the Lundgrens, who are part of our church here. Uh, And he's studying at Cal State Fullerton as a grad student. And in 2009, so two years before he moved here, he got a hold of a Bible somehow and had some sort of Christian influence in his life. And he began considering the claims of Christ very privately, not telling anybody in his family, but drawn to the gospel. And now he's been here for a year and he's saying, I want to be baptized He emailed me this last week, this one-page little, said, my confession, and explaining his understanding of of how one comes to be in God's family, which is awesome. He's identifying. um, But two weeks ago, his family, his parents in Iran found out that he now identifies himself with Jesus and called him up. And I said, what did they say? And he said, they cursed me. I said, what did you say? And say, we were typing Facebook messages back and forth. And this is what he typed back. He typed back, I told them, sorry, where is that? I want to get his words. I told them, I relinquished my life to Jesus. This is the way of righteousness. Faced with the cost, he said, I know the wishes of my family, but I'm going to yield to the will of God. This is my righteousness, Jesus. Now, that's about as serious as it gets, right? Maybe your parents haven't cursed you, but maybe your parents think you're crazy. Maybe your parents think one day you're going to grow out of this and mellow out about Jesus stuff. Or maybe your kids think you're nuts. Maybe your kids resist every inclination or that you have every attempt that you make to try to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I talked to someone at Grace this last week whose husband and both uh, children, uh, none of them, confess Jesus as Lord. And, and there's this pain, this, this sadness, this wedge right through uh, her, her immediate nuclear family. She says, I feel alone in my house. What do we talk about? Often. There can be this cost. But like the hymn we sang just before this message, Jesus makes it very clear that we're not gonna be, he's not going to be indebted to us. That anything it costs, even if it costs us family and all the security that comes along with having family, Jesus' promises are bigger. Listen to this as we finish. Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus says to people who very likely could lose everything, all family, their house, their home, their property, their future, he says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, get this, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions, he says. So that's still on the table, right? And in the age to come, eternal life. I love, he does not just say, listen, this might cost you your family, but I'll make it up to you in heaven. I'll make it up to you in eternity. He says, no, I plan to make this up to you now. It might not look exactly the way, but if, if, it, if, if following me costs you everything, family and all the security comes with, he's, he promises Hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. I am making a family, Jesus says, a kingdom family that you are now a part of, that if you lose your earthly family, this family can be more to you than you've lost. 
Jesus, in that promise, I think, is writing a check that we cash. As a church, we're the ones who make good on this. We're the family who acts like a family and loves and cares for in the gap that sometimes following Jesus can leave. It's awesome. Jeremy and Casey Lundgren, who Muhammad's living with, it's beautiful. They are already making good on this promise in Muhammad's life right now. A month ago, we were at lunch, Jeremy and Muhammad and I, and he got teary as he, he, he just shook his head. He doesn't understand in Islam where, where he, that he came out of this idea. He says, I'm outsider to Jeremy. Jeremy calls me brother. I live in his house. That's my home. So church, we're charged with making good on this promise to Jesus here, and by his grace, we will. God's kingdom is a family, and whoever does the will of God, whoever yields can be a part of it. Here's how we're going to finish. I know we're right up. We're going to, I'm going to ask you to be an event-oriented culture and not a time-oriented culture just for a minute. Suspend your American time orientation and just take, give us a couple more minutes. I want to give some time to pray quietly, but here's a few suggested ways you might turn what we were just talking about into prayer, depending on what here... The Lord is working on with you. Maybe for some of you who have been raised in the church and you've always known the blessing of just being part of Christian family and Christian church, it might be worth it to pray and say, Lord, does whoever does the will of God, does that describe me? My food is to do the will of God. Does that describe me? And if not, to yield to him. Maybe some of you right now, this last thing we're talking about, that's painful. You feel that gap Jesus has made in your family. And you might spend a couple minutes praying this Mark 10 promise, saying, Lord, would you make good on this promise in my life? It is costing me, and I feel the cost of it. Lord, would you, through your church, show me your love? Make good on Jesus' promise. Claim Jesus' promise personally. Third, for you with wonderful families, <laughs> wonderful families who are also part of the family of God, which makes family even greater, right? John's closing words from his letter it says, little children, keep yourself from idols might be worth praying on and say, Lord, if there's any way that family is vying in my heart for the throne of ultimate, to say, God, help me see that. Help me to keep you first so that I might love my family best. And last, for all of you who have yielded your life to Jesus, we, we, we continue to pray each week at our um, point of confession that we have every week in our worship service. Part of the point is to say, Lord, still, I still yield my life to you. Forgive me, Lord. I yield. Maybe there's some things this morning, that idea of I can be opposed to God in some ways by just trying to avoid parts of, of his word, certain commands, certain things, and maybe just to, to sit and say, Lord, not my will be done in this, but yours. So take a moment, be quiet, pray, and, uh, and then Doug's going to come up and close us with a hymn.